chapter 8. For the next three weeks, we're going to be studying what it means to be more than conquerors in the book of Romans, specifically in chapter 8, which is probably a terrible idea because um, Romans is a hard book to just drop into the middle of. But um, I think that this is actually a good time to be studying this topic, and so we're going we're gonna to do it anyway for pastoral reasons. Now, um, one of the verses I read this week is in Proverbs 24. It says this. It says, um, if you faint in the day of adversity, how narrow is your strength? If you faint in the day of adversity, how narrow is your strength? A lot of translations say how weak, how weak are you, right? But the Hebrew would actually mean something like more like narrowed. Why? Well, I mean, this is kind of how I feel at home right now. I'm cooped up with my four children and my wife and our pets and myself, which is a problem for me too. And so all these things are going on and I can't do what I normally do. And one of the things you find out in times like this is much of the control you exert over your life, much of what you think is your strength, is really your ability to control the environment you live in rather than a real transformation that's happening in the human soul and heart. That your inner life is really different, changed, and mature. And so when you're, when you're, um, when the systems that you live your life through get broken down and you get cooped up in a house with people you're not used to being with that long, sometimes what you, fi- you find is, is that your strength is actually pretty narrow. If you control your life, you're great. But the minute you lose control over the structure of your life, you're not great. Um, there's three of these kinds of battles that tend to come up in our inner world when we're being conquered by our life, when we're finding that our strength is narrow. Um, the first is, is that sometimes you just experience the eruption of your worst self. You want to do something. You don't want to be irritable, but you're irritable. You don't want to get angry, but you get angry. You know that saying something loving and helpful and drawing in towards another person would be the right thing to do, and yet you say something self-justifying and arguing for your position without any kind of sympathy towards them, right? You know that you shouldn't eat more, but you just want to. You know that 11 hours in front of a TV isn't good for you, but yet you've already done 10, right? So, like, you just find that there's something that you would like to choose because you know it's healthy and holy, and then you just do something else. And that eruption of our worst self, that inability to be what we even want to be, is really demoralizing, right? The second is that you find yourself in the bigger picture experiencing a world that bothers you. Why is the world like this? The world should not be like this. The world should be better than this. And that, that idea that we're struggling in a world that isn't the way it should be, and that that feels futile or vain or just problematic, is this sort of like annoyance that runs through human life as it is right now. And the third thing is just the daily practical suffering of real pain, right? For some of us, it's just you have a lot of physical pain for all kinds of reasons. For some of us, it's, it's pain that you have in relationships that are broken or things that are going wrong or you've lost your job already and you don't know what you're going to do in three weeks. There's all kinds of things. Some people have the sickness that's going around and it's what one person experienced Um, described it as the flu times 10 or something like that. There's all kinds of suffering that's normal in life. And that's one of the things we struggle with. In in Christian terms, these three inner battles are referred to as the flesh or indwelling sin, the, the curse, the futility unleashed upon creation because of sin, and just suffering. Um, 
you could, you could talk about these three enemies in three phrases, right? You could, the flesh could be defined like this. It's in Romans 7, 24. What a wretched man I am. <laughs> Who will deliver me from this body of death? That is, I know what I'm supposed to be. I'm nothing like that. I can't seem to change. I'm just wretched, right? The second is the curse. Romans 8, 20 says, for all of creation was subjected to futility. Sometimes it just feels like that, that we live in a world where stuff happens that shouldn't, and the whole thing feels like a big bunch of futility. And then third is our suffering. Paul says it like this in 8, 36, which we'll talk about the third week. All day long, we're like sheep to be slaughtered, that we suffer so much practically that it just feels like we are, we are slaughter animals. We're just livestock, and we just are—we exist to suffer or to be slaughtered. That's what it feels like. Of course, that verse comes right before him saying, but in the midst of this, we're more than conquerors. We'll talk about that the third week. And so over these three weeks, one of the more things we're going to do is we're going to move through each of these in order, and we're going to start with the flesh. Now, it's important to recognize that um, a lot of people say that the book of Romans is about justification by faith, that through the death and resurrection of Jesus, he has atoned for our sins, and when we put our faith in him, our sin is put on the death of Christ, and Christ's righteousness is given to us, and we're counted right before God, and that counting just or righteous before God is called justification. And the book of Romans triumphs that doctrine, that's what it's all about. And that is not true. It is true that the book of Romans champions the doctrine of justification, but he's laid it out and explained it by the end of chapter 4. And Romans has 16 chapters. I'm going to do the math here. I think that means that there's 12 more chapters after he's finished clarifying the doctrine of justification. And the reason why that's important is because justification cannot completely save you. Justification, justification is the means by which through faith we're counted just so that we can receive all of Christian salvation, which includes justification, atonement, forgiveness, but then also reconciliation with God, which leads to union with God in Christ, which leads to God pouring out his spirit, which leads to our triumph over sin and death, and ultimately to glorification, where we will see God in resurrected bodies in his final glory. All of that is salvation. And it begins with the gift of justification and the miracle of regeneration, which allows for faith. It, by the time we get to Romans 7, he's already talked about being justified and believing in Jesus. And yet he gets to this point, and he's—it's this really, really depressing chapter about how in his mind he knows what's right. He knows what God wants. He knows what's good. He knows what he should do. He knows what human life is for. He knows how she should treat other people. And he just doesn't—not consistently, not all the time, right? And the chapter ends like this. He says, For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, that it's, it's no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that's subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Christ Jesus our Lord. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature a slave to the law 
of sin. You see, um, Romans 7 is kind of a controversial passage as to exactly what that refers to. I'm going to jump right to the answer because my sermon is going to be shorter today. And that is that the, the person saying this, as the apostle says that, he says that in his inner being, he delights in God's law. Okay? That is somebody who has already been awakened to conviction about what is good and right. He sees it. He understands what he should be. And he isn't that. So to say, well, this is, this is really just a story of an unconverted person who hasn't received conviction about sin or really knows the law of God. And so, yeah, they're going to struggle to do what's good and they're going to fail. No, that's not really what this is. This is somebody who has been awakened, either in conviction, who hasn't yet been saved, but probably is a proper explanation of Paul's experience that even though he's pretty consistent as an apostle, he still sees in himself this thing operating, that there's two selves, that there's— there's an inner mind, so to speak, an inner will that delights in God's law, that wants to do what's right, that knows that it's good, and that loves Christ. And then there's another thing that's in some ways just as much him, though he doesn't identify with it. But it's there, and it keeps waging war against him and ultimately taking him captive under its power. He keeps failing. So these, he says, I'm, I feel like a wretched person, right? And that is— um, a, an English preacher, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Joyd, said it this way. That is the experience of everyone who believes in salvation up to the point of reconciliation and union, but does not understand the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. That anybody who seeks to follow God and to serve God and to belong to God and to know God and to walk with God and to conquer sin and to live in the inheritance of Christ and to be free in Christ— but who does not understand what it means to believe in, walk in, and have the mind of the Holy Spirit will come to this end of ruin. And so you can believe in justification, and you can believe Jesus died for your sins, and you can believe that the Bible tells you the truth about God, and you can believe all kinds of things, including things related to and part of Christian salvation, and yet, and yet, you can still come to spiritual discouragement and ultimately possibly ruin if you don't understand and recognize you have to understand the work and power and strength and life of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so this series is gonna— the proposition for this series could be something like Christians conquer the flesh, the curse, and suffering in the Spirit. Or today, Christians conquer the flesh— in the Spirit, or more generically, in Christian faith, Christians conquer in the Spirit. That being in the Spirit, knowing what that means precisely, and living it out is fundamental to what it means to be a conqueror. If you—in Romans 8, what it's saying is, apart from a doctrine of the Holy Spirit, apart from knowing the Holy Spirit, apart from being in the Holy Spirit, in union with God the Holy Spirit, you cannot become an heir and receive the power and ability to conquer— these three great inner struggles come into all of humanity, and you were meant to. It says, in Christ, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Through the work of Christ and the demonstration of the love of God, it is your birthright in faith. It is your resurrection right to experience the overconquering of Christ in you by the Spirit. But you will not experience it if you do not have what the, what scriptures call the mind of the Spirit. Okay, so look at, let's look at this a little bit. I'm going to look at three things quickly. First is that 
we come to the end of Romans 7, and Paul says, what a wretched person I am. The, the word wretched means worthy of condemnation, right? It means unable, it means fully sinful, unable to do what's right, and too weak to do anything about it. Wretchedness is a position of complete lostness and utter weakness. And so there's nothing to be redeemed. There's no way the person can save themselves. They're completely lost. And so the assumption is, is that something that is truly wretched the proper execution towards it is condemnation. You destroy it and get rid of it. And so the very next, next verse in Romans 8, he says, but now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Meaning that because of Jesus Christ and what he does to us in that wretched state, what God chooses to do instead of condemning us as a whole, he condemns in us the powerlessness, the weakness, and the wretchedness and he does it instead of condemning us. Because God can see the difference between the good we want to do and the good, and the, and the good we can't do. He sees the difference in us between our inner being that delights in God's law and the law of sin working in our inner being, the indwelling sin that we hate so much, but that seems to overpower us at every turn. One of the things that people often think is that in the reason Jesus came in the flesh was only to die as an atoning sacrifice. Because all sacrifices had to die by the shedding of blood, and therefore only something in flesh with life in the blood could die and therefore be an atoning sacrifice. But what this passage says is that Jesus did more than that. It says that Christ's death and resurrection does at least three things. Right? I have to skip ahead a couple slides for this one. Right? It says— it says that in Christ, God condemned sin in the flesh. Now you have to read the whole book of Romans to get all these points. But in chapters 3 and 4, it focuses on atonement. That Jesus died as an atoning sacrifice to take away the penalty for our sins. To legally set us free from them. To count us as innocent and to give us his righteousness so that we could be justified or have right standing with God. But then it says he can, that God, through Jesus Christ, condemned sin in the flesh. That doesn't mean he condemned sin where it resides inside of our flesh. In the flesh there most likely refers to the flesh of Jesus Christ. That because Jesus died in the flesh, in his dying in the flesh, he condemns sin in our flesh. That the two relate to one another. And as Jesus dies in the flesh, we die to the flesh through his death. Because what Romans 6 says is, that when we're baptized, what that signifies is that through faith, we have entered into the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. And he says, the law of sin is like a contract, and contracts only function when people are alive. This is the argument through chapter 6. And he says, so if the law of sin controlled you because you were under the law, when you died with Christ— he, God broke and eliminated that contract through your death. So the death—what he's saying is the death of Christ is imputed to you not just as your atoning sacrifice, but it's imputed to you as a death. And as being imputed to you as a death, you are no longer the things that you were under in life. That is the law and the law's ability to manipulate and destroy you under the power of the flesh. And so Christ dying in the flesh and dying does all three of these things, atones for your sins— condemns the power of the flesh to control you in his dying in the flesh, and sets you free from the law by imputing a true death to you, by his union with you, 
so that you have died to the law and no longer live under it. It can no longer be killed and made wretched by it. And that is all done, it says, through Christ Jesus. He gave you the law of the spirit of life. I want to keep moving here. So the result of that is that if he's done all three of those things, that condemnation that comes from failure is also broken. Right? The, the condemnation that would come through the guilt of your sins was broken in Christ's atonement. But the failure that comes from just not being able to do it right, the, bro- the brokenness by the flesh, Christ's death in the flesh condemns that. It condemns the, the power of the flesh and destroys it and its hold. And it sets you free to live in what he calls the spirit of life. Okay, so the next thing is this. You must therefore believe in that spirit of life. You must believe in what this passage calls the mind of the spirit. Listen to what it says in verses 5 11. Those who live in accordance with the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the spirit have their minds set on what the spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. But those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. Here's part of what this is getting at. Part of coming to Christ is repenting of your sins. And on one level, you could say what that means is to say, I'm sorry I did those things. God, please forgive me for them. Okay. That's not really all that God is looking for here. Nor what's necessary for your salvation. So think think about it from a parenting perspective for a second. If my kids do something wrong, and I say, that thing you did is wrong, I don't want them to just say, I'm sorry I did it. I apologize. Please forgive me. What I want them to do is accept the logic was wrong. I want them to accept that their choice of the thing was wrong, their action was wrong, and their justification for it was wrong. I want them not to to be sorry for what they did, but I want them to release the hostility of the logic and thinking the mind that led them to the sin. You see, at the end of the day, it's important to recognize that you can't repent of your sins without repenting of the mind that valued, chose, and justified them. If you think that you can repent of your sins and turn from them or say that they were wrong and not repent or turn from the mind that valued, chose, and justified those actions, you're just living in a dream world, right? The work of Christ is supposed to bring about the mind of Christ, or what this passage calls the mind of the Spirit. If you say that you're sorry for your sins and you ask for God's forgiveness, but you don't ever really change your mind, you end up still in the mind of the flesh, which will continually and continually and continually lead to death. In fact, one of the Greek words that is translated repentance is metanoia, which means to change your mind, which assumes turning in another direction, but it also assumes being persuaded by the truth of God that not just the action was wrong, but your values in choosing the action, your choice of it, and your later justification of it was all wrong too. And so what he's saying is what needs to happen to escape the practical hold of the wretchedness 
of our weakness and sin and the domination of the flesh is that we have to receive the mind of the Spirit. You have to receive that. That is, that is necessary. And it's not just necessary for you to be free. It's actually part and parcel of repentance and salvation. If you don't do that, what this passage teaches is that you're not a Christian. It literally says if you don't have the mind of Christ or the mind of Spirit, you don't belong to Christ. That's a categorical statement about your standing with God and your salvation. So accepting the Spirit is necessary. It's a fundamental part of being saved. It's a fundamental part of walking with Christ and knowing God and being his and receiving his salvation entirely. Right? Okay. Those of you who know me know that I have a lot more to say about that. But I want to, I want to skip to the end and talk about exactly how to apply this. Okay, let's— And that is this. What this passage is teaching is, is that you can conquer in participation with the Spirit. That you can conquer the flesh. That is, the, erupt, the constant eruption of your worst self would be the secular way to say it. Or that you can conquer indwelling sin would be the religious or Christian way to say it. But you, you can conquer in participation in the Spirit. Okay, so there's, there's four ways. So you can be like, well, how do I do that? How do I embrace the Spirit? Is it just a mystical? Do I say, Holy Spirit, come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit. Well, you can do that. It's perfectly fine. You can even put your hands out. And you can—if you want to wave flags, you can do that. Like, the Holy Spirit loves to be invited. It's great to invite the Holy Spirit, okay? Just don't weird other people out while you're doing it. It's not necessary. But in this passage, it explicitly tells you how to receive and embrace the Holy Spirit, right? So there's four ways. One is to embrace the law of the Spirit of life, like it says in the first verses. Through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life— has set you free from the law of sin and death. What that means is, is that the Spirit carries with him a new body of information, a new logic, and a new obligation. And that logic and obligation is to the will of God and the true good. And so what you recognize when you turn to the Spirit is though you're not under the written letter of the law, you're still being drawn into the ordinances or the the goal of the law. So it actually says in the passage, so that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us. The idea is, is that you'll live up to the law without being under it. You'll live up to its moral tenor and its burden without having to live up to all of its written contract. The law of the Spirit of life wants to lead you into the true good. And so part of receiving the Holy Spirit is accepting that he's going to lead you into the will of God and he's going to lead you into the true good. And that's the law of life, the law of wisdom, the law of truth. And you have to embrace that. You have to want the good and want the good want God wants for you and for others. You have to know that God's good truth and beauty is non-negotiable and that he's calling you into a life and an eternity of that. And so you can't live in the mind of the flesh and want just whatever you want, whatever your desires are groping for and belong to the Spirit. You have to realize he's going to lead you into the good, right? The second thing is you need to embrace the death and resurrection identity. If you haven't been baptized, you need to be baptized if you say you believe in Jesus. It is his first commandment of obedience. Why? Because it's a participation in the identity of the death and resurrection that you receive in Christ and by his Spirit that comes from God the Father, right? Romans 6 says it this way. Are we those—we are those who have died to sin— How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know? So this is a justification. Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? 
Right? Why do you think we dunk people? Why do we put people underwater and pull them back up? Why do we, why do we as our church, focus on that mode and we don't, we don't use the other ones, though some Christians do? It's because we want everybody who gets baptized to personally, emotionally, and spiritually identify that when they come to baptism, they're being baptized into the death of Christ Jesus. So that they will know the old them is dead, like it says in 2 Corinthians. But here the point is, is that being dead in the grave with Christ imputes his death to you, and so you are free from flesh and law. But also it says, right, it says that when we're buried with him through baptism into death, it says, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead, through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. So the resurrection of Jesus is parallel to us coming out of the water and living a new life in what? In the Spirit. Right? It says in Romans 8, 11, right? In this passage, it says, And if the Spirit of him who raised Christ Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who lives in you. Do you see the emphasis on the Spirit there? By his— if the Spirit is in you, then by his Spirit, he will do this. You have to embrace this idea that you have died forever to the flesh and the law and to sin. You're dead to it. You are dead as dead as Christ was dead on the cross itself and buried in the tomb. And as alive to the Spirit and as alive to the Spirit of life and as alive to God as Christ is risen from the dead. And that is your identity. The third thing is that by the Spirit, you have to execute the flesh, right? Romans 8, 13, 14 says, If you live according to the sinful nature or the flesh, you will die. That is a holistic use of the word die. It means spiritually, completely, and physically. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Right? Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons or sons and daughters of God. So a, one of the criteria to prove whether or not the faith in you is real saving faith is whether or not you have not only died to sin in terms of how you see it, but you have a new hostility. Before this, it says, our, the, the text says that one of the things that happens when we're in the mind of the flesh is we have a hostility towards God. Right? But now there's a, there's a new hostility. There's no longer hostility towards God. There is a new hostility towards the flesh to put it to death with extreme prejudice in the most bloody way possible. And the work of putting to death the flesh is a work of the Spirit. Every time in faith you choose to put the flesh to death, either by choosing the Spirit in the moment, in the moment of the temptation of your desires, to choose the Spirit, that is the work of putting to death the flesh, or the humiliating act of apologizing and repenting after you fail— is an act of putting the flesh to death because it, in, it involves humility and leads you in love towards others and causes you to fail at least in the right direction. And then lastly is, you need to accept the spirit of sonship or son and daughtership to be a child of God. It says, the spirit who re you received does not make you a slave so that you live in fear again, but rather the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. That is, to be a child of God, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. Abba is, um, the, in the Aramaic word, there'd be something like Papa in the South. It's like a term of endearment that you can only use with your daddy, but that it's not like, doesn't mean that you're a baby. Right? 
And so what he's saying is this. He's saying part of embracing the Spirit is embracing the fact that, and this is in Romans 5, what I'm going to say right now, that the death and resurrection of Jesus didn't just purchase your salvation and the love of God, but it was the supreme act of the demonstration of the love of God. The problem is not just that in sin you could have been counted worthless, but in our wretchedness we feel worthless. Most people will not grapple with the level of inferiority and worthlessness that they feel. Either because either they're in denial and they live in pride. I'm worth something. I'm fantastic. I'm never going to face everything that's wrong with me and what I do. Or they feel worthless because people have treated them like they're worthless. And what Romans 5 argues all the way through and into chapter 6 is that the death of Christ is not just an act of God's love. It is a demonstration of God's love. And it is a demonstration of his love that makes us his children so that we can come to him like a, like a papa, right? That we have a relationship of being a son or a daughter. And it says in the very next verse, we'll talk about next week, an heir to everything that is God's, including his glory. Let's end with this. You, according to scripture, will never have the power in yourself in this life to overcome what the Bible calls the flesh or indwelling sin. Not in yourself, but in participation with the Spirit, what the Bible calls union with Christ or union with the Holy Spirit, the Spirit being in you, by you receiving it with the mind of the Spirit, that activity of expressing faith and inviting in the Spirit to work in your life in the, at least these four ways— activates a power in participating with the Spirit so that you will be, have access to a power in the Spirit you wouldn't have all by yourself. It doesn't take away your responsibility. You still have to drive. You're in charge of your life. You have to put—remember it says, the Spirit doesn't put the flesh to death. You have to put the flesh to death. You have to do these things. But in participation with the Spirit by faith, you will be made a conqueror in them. Not only will you not be condemned in your wretchedness, but you will grow into a conqueror over the flesh. And if you can conquer this inner battle, the, the battle of inner wretchedness in the spirit, you will conquer the other two. And you will conquer all. And that is his gift. Do not stop short of it. Let's pray. God, as we think about the truth of your word, as we think about what you say in this passage, as we seek to love you with our whole hearts, and as we seek to do what this passage tells us about becoming an overcomer, especially of indwelling sin, help us to embrace the truth of the life-giving Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and to invite him in. So Father, I pray right now for everybody who's watching, I pray to the extent to which they agree with me in this prayer. If you're praying with me, you can even put your hands out. Come Holy Spirit, come be with us. Be near us. We accept you now as the spirit of the law of life. Accepting you means accepting you will lead us into the good, the true, and the beautiful, the truth of God, his wisdom. We, we accept you as the spirit of the death and resurrection, which is our identity. Dead to the law, dead to sin, dead to the flesh, dead to indwelling sin, alive to Christ, alive to the power of the resurrection coming from you, Holy Spirit. We accept you as the spirit who who wishes to help us put to death the flesh in our life, to kill sin. We receive you, warrior spirit. 
And lastly, we receive you, Holy Spirit, as the spirit of sonship and daughtership, that we are truly children of God, and that even in our failure, we turn to God as, our, as Papa, as the one who, for whom he heaps no condemnation, but has put to death the flesh, sin, and hell, and he brings us further into his will, into his life, into his transformation. We receive you and invite you, Holy Spirit, to change and help us and move in us. We pray through Christ Jesus, our Lord.